and for today's bit of esoteric knowledge from the Barter College. Lots of people know about the time of troubles in the Forgotten Realms that transitioned AD&D from 1st edition to 2nd edition, but the fate of Istis anthology set in Greyhawk could kill off people with the plague if the PCs script their classes section of the anthology. I'll tell you, edition changes are the worst time to vacation on different campaign worlds. Just cancel your Spelljammer tickets. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love other RPGs, D&D is our dessert, and sometimes you have ice cream for dinner. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And then in 2021, I became the head gnome in charge of, you know, who goes in the stew pot. I'm a review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. Jared has thoughts about games. <laughs> now, after we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where we'll take a look at the uh, latest playtest document from D&D 1, which is looking at expert classes. Today, though, we're going to focus on the rules glossary and some of the other crunchier bits and save the classes for our next episode. After that, we'll get into our downtime research segment. But first, I get to talk about my campaign. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So we picked up where we left off, right outside the island cave where they knew the pirate leaders were holding the children. They had a little bit of an idea what was inside, so they decided to just charge in and get the whole party started. Now, they were pretty tapped out on resources when this fight started. Vandreth the paladin was out of his smites. Most of the spellcasters were very low on spell slots. And they still had some lingering damage from the previous fight with the bearmit crabs. This actually worked out just how I wanted to. Up until now, we'd mostly had one-off fights that didn't really challenge them too much. And so moving from the beach fight to the Bearmit Crads to the cave taxed the resources just like I wanted. Unless you're actually giving the characters, you know, a dungeon they have to explore or something with a lot of immediate threats, you can usually just deal with a fight and then take your recovery time and deal with the next fight several hours later. So this was kind of what I was looking for to test how that would work with this group and kind of put them through their paces. This fight was a tough one. They were up against a veteran, three bandits, three regular Sahagan, a Sahagan warlock, and a Sahagan champion. Because of the layout of the caves, they got bottlenecked and the warlock was able to drop a very nasty spell on them. I forgot to look up what the name of that spell was, but it was like a a globe of darkness and doom with the sound of slurping waves. It was moist. Oh, it's it's, it's Hunger of Hadar. I know that yeah. one because I had a player terrorize my encounters with that for several sessions. <laughs> I just remember reading the description of them and they're like, I think it contains the description of moist and slurping. Yeah. And they were just like, this is gross. <laughs> what are you doing, Ange? The warlock did catch one of the bandits in there, but he didn't care enough about the bandit to worry about hurting him. It was truly me finally getting to drop an AoE on the players like they always get to drop on the bad guys. <laughs> that fight was touch and go for a while, especially with the champion. He got three attacks per turn, which was brutal. Manuk, the fighter druid, actually went down once um, after having saved himself earlier with a quick beast shape. That's actually a really handy thing for druids because 
when you use wild shape, you have the full hit points of whatever you change into. And then when you drop back down, you have whatever hit points you had left when you shifted into that. So he used that tactically to make sure he could stay in the fight a little longer, even if it weirdly meant there was a horse in an underground cave that was <laughs> probably filled with the tides. I don't know. Eventually, they worked through all the combatants until just the champion was left. And the champion took stock of the situation, disengaged, and then ran off and dove into one of the underwall tunnels to get out of the place. Now, I realized afterwards I actually cheated. <laughs> I did the champion's departure wrong. Disengage should have taken his action, which meant he would have only gotten a standard move. Instead, I disengaged and then gave him a double move, <laughs> uh, which did allow him to get away. But, uh, c'est la vie. The players were panicking that, oh, no, he's going to bring back reinforcements, which is a reasonable worry for them to have. But I knew that there was no chance in hell of that happening because all of his reinforcements were either dead and imprisoned <laughs> on the beach or dead in this cave. Dude, that That's also when you just put in the, the little stat block, you put bonus action, uh, <laughs> disengage. <laughs> like, now he can do it. After the fight was over, we had kind of that that kind of long debate that only happens in role-playing games as the players try and figure out logistics and make things way more complicated than they need to. They had a few <laughs> crates of, quote-unquote, trade goods. They started debating, do we leave them? We can't carry them. How do we do this? And I'm just like, you guys have a, a, you have a ship with rowboats. You just need to get them up out of the cave and onto the beach and send the sailors to why are you dudes why are you way overthinking this they do this every time oh goodness i know this problem has existed far longer but i'm gonna start referring to that as mercer's chair because <laughs> the the one episode of uh, critical role where matt made the mistake of over explaining what a chair looked like so everyone assumed the chair uh -huh. had something important uh -huh. to do with the scene <laughs> i believe i wrote an article maybe not on this particular type of overthinking but i wrote an article on the stew like year and a half ago about making mountains out of molehills <laughs> in which the party just gets bogged down in debating the minute like like oh just debating what do we do with this and like it goes around and around and around and it's like that's that's when I have my Leroy Jenkins moments and turn this into a now problem if I'm a player. So eventually they got back to the original beach where the wreck was and met up with the captain and the refugees. There was a little bit of, you know, role playing and logistics, getting, you know, deciding what to do with the pirates who had survived, how to get everyone onto the ship. It's a huge ship. It wasn't going to be a huge problem. It was just going to make the quarters a little tight. Now, once they were on the ship, they started spending a little more time getting to know the survivors. And a bunch of them were Syrian refugees who were basically trying to start a new life. And a group of about 15 of them uh, were planning on basically starting a farm commune of sorts near Stormreach. Now, when Sax, the drow cleric, got talking to them, he got a bad feeling about it, but he's not worldly enough to understand why he had a bad feeling about it <laughs> so he ended up pulling in Perrin the elven blade singer who is college educated and the refugees leader showed him the deed that they had spent all of their money on purchasing and he realized almost instantly that it was fake again I'm so grateful for my players leaning into the heroic tropes because immediately Perrin was like we're gonna fix this 
<laughs> I have no idea how we're going to fix this, but we're not going to leave these people stranded in Stormreach. <laughs> Eventually, they pulled the group together. They debated about it and figured out what they were going to do. They pulled in a couple of their NPC expedition leaders and talked to them about it. So they were able to set up, once they arrived in Stormreach, those refugees were able to come with them while the other survivors went off and did whatever they were planning to do in Stormreach anyway. Now, the rest of that session was them getting set up in Stormreach. And I had a lot of fun describing the city because Stormreach is a city of many cultures built on top of the bones of a giant city. So you have these ruins that have been reshaped and reused and just it's it's a hive of scum and villainy in a fantasy setting you know mm -hmm. they got to the manor where they're going to be working out of and there was a little bit of exploring in town and we actually ended up having rena accidentally reveal that she's a changeling to a large number of the groups because she decided she wanted to go drinking with giants <laughs> so she and her npc buddy found a bar that had giants there and instantly insulted the giants through the role play, <laughs> at which point they got pulled inside and offered a different drink that is made with a hallucinogenic. And she failed her constitution role, her constitution save, at which point we decided that this meant she was not playing it safe with her changeling abilities. Mm -hmm. So when they ran into other members of the party who later decided to go exploring town and of course find the best place to get a drink because that's what adventurers do <laughs> they got to see rena in full changeling form you know there was a period of time where she had changed to look like perrin walking around town in this matronly dress that she wears but still <laughs> looking like perrin this young buff elf person <laughs> and that's where we ended we're gonna pick up next time with um them getting off into the exploration part of the game and i actually wrote up some exploration rules that we're going to be using as we turn them going off into the wilds of zendrick into a hex crawl i've never run before so i'm kind of excited about this the interesting thing is i've now finally been able to run a game in sharn but I really want to run something based out of Stormreach too. I I tend to like when I look at campaign settings, a lot of times I will look at cities from which to base things because cities often have some neat little, you know, touchstones for role playing and things like that. So that, that's been another one of those things where it's like someday I have to run another Eberron game just so I can use Stormreach instead of uh, instead of Sharn. If you can get your hands on the uh, 3.0, 3.5 City of Stormreach book, there's a wealth of information in there. And of course, with any of the old Eberron books, it's use what you want. There's a lot of good stuff in there that I'm I'm pulling on. Oh, yeah. I was going to say I use the uh, 3.5 Sharn book for that campaign that I ran a lot. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, what I was going to do this week was surprise Ange for once because she was going to be at a convention and we were going to run our game without Ange and then I was going to catch her up on what happened. But a couple of our players were under the weather and so we didn't play on our usual night, which means I don't really have a lot going on, although I did send out a survey to kind of check in with everybody about what they want to play test from one D&D in this campaign. I've been toying with the idea of running something that is just 100% playtest, but for my regular campaign, I don't want to do it if it's going to, you know, mess with anybody's fun. So I've been kind of careful about saying, we're going to do this now this week. 
I can get old fast. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't mind, you know, I didn't mind like testing it. Like we tested out adding feet to the characters and that was kind of cool. Yeah, because it's one extra feat for everybody and it's, it's additive. It's not taking anything away from anybody. And then inspiration, that's honestly, that's not that hard to test and to swap in and out because inspiration is really kind of fuzzy the way it works in standard 5e anyway. I'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I tried to do was um, I was going to make up some pregens just using the one D&D thing. And I've learned if I don't picture playing a character, I cannot, you know, sit through the entire process of making a character <laughs> up. Like I have to like almost trick myself into thinking you will play this character someday in order to get me to follow all the way through with making a character. And, I, and honestly, I make a lot of characters because most of the games that I review, I will make a character while I'm doing the review just to see if I can follow that process and, you know, check it against anything that they have in there to make sure I did it right. But I was looking at this going, some of this is neat, but if I can't convince myself, you know, I, I went in knowing that this was a, this was for making pregens for other people to use. So I was like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I take a certain pleasure in crafting a group of characters for a one shot. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's almost like part of the storytelling and setting up of a game. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing is if I knew beforehand I am going to run this, I could sit there and go, oh, these are the type of adventures I can picture running through this adventure. But just as a blank, these are characters that we can use for any playtest, it was like, no, I can't do it. And honestly, what you're trying to set up is let's playtest these rules. Oops, we accidentally started role-playing. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I already kind of ran into that because I wrote, like I was just going to say, I'm going to throw together like five encounters and maybe two optional ones, and that'll be our playtest. And then every so often I was getting in there saying, and this, this happened because... There was a wizard that did this. I said, like, stop it. You're adding stories. Stop with the story. <laughs> we don't need dungeon ecology here. <laughs> All right. So now um, let's get into our Dungeon Master's Workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Today, we're going to start looking at the latest 1D&D playtest Unearthed Arcana for expert classes. And we're not going to be done with this in one episode. There's a lot going on there. So today we're going to start looking at the rules glossary and feats and maybe touch a little bit on the spell lists. And in a later show, we'll start looking at the classes. So there is a lot going on, but let's start with D20 tests. The big change here is that we change some things back to the original Unearthed Arcana. What are your thoughts on that, Ange? The big change was like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I think it was pretty obvious early on with the original, the first play test document that people were not happy with the changes to D20 tests. To be honest, I didn't mind the changes that said a 1 was always a failure and a 20 was always success, because I believe that's the way most people play. It's like, yeah, technically speaking, if someone has a high enough skill and they roll a 1, they should fail, but uh, anyway, that's the way people kind of play it. What was really problematic with the uh, the initial change was the, the, the changes to critical hits. Uh, it was a huge sore spot for a lot of folks. I mean, as the rogue player, I want my stabby stab critical. <laughs> There's honestly a lot tied up in the severe limiting of critical hits that made players on both sides of the table upset. 
Players were upset at losing it for things like sneak attacks, smite, spell attacks, but GMs were also upset for losing it for monsters. Now, it is possible that in a future playtest, they would have mitigated that with changing the monsters up to make them more interesting to play and not weakened by losing that ability to critical. Ultimately, I hope they leave the critical hits be and allow them for things like smites and sneak attack and the spell attacks, but also still spruce up the monsters and make them more exciting to run. Please bring back bloodied reactions. Mm -hmm. That was a fantastic aspect of fourth edition that I think has been kind of swept under the rug. Our editor, Chris Snezak, has said that when he runs 5e, he actually gives a lot of his monsters a bloodied reaction because it is a really cool concept. There's actually a neat DM's Guild product. It's called the Bloodied and Bruised that has all of those. It goes through the different monsters that have been published so far and, and adds in like can just change things and reactions for uh, bloodied. One of the things I, I like about the shard BTT that I've been using for my Eberron game is that when monsters get to half, the ring around their icon goes orange and then when it's under a quarter it goes red <laughs> so it does give the players that visual representation of how hurt is this monster to be fair i don't think they're done tinkering with how these d20 tests are going to work but i do appreciate them putting the critical hits back to the way they were in the videos that were released with the uh, update they mentioned that the designers haven't started really compiling the information from the surveys but it sounds like the changes to critical hits were pretty unpopular. And also they mentioned using it like in their home tests and deciding they wanted to try something else in the tests that they were running. I don't think they needed the final results from the survey to know that one was unpopular. Yeah, I think that one that one kind of bubbled up pretty quick for them there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, mainly we lost the automatic success on a 20 and failure on a one, which I get it, but at the same time, there's so many things telling you things like, don't do this if it's too automatic for people to do. And in most cases, if somebody only fails on a one, then yeah, you probably shouldn't call for that test to begin with. There's a lot of multiple vectors of thinking how to frame skills all there in that one way that they were trying to handle it. There's a degree of GM mastery in how to handle when to call for skill roles and stuff like that. And I... I do think a game system needs to be upfront with how to handle those, but GM shouldn't call for roles if the role doesn't matter. Yeah, and I'm this is going to come up elsewhere since we're talking about the rules glossary, but this is where I honestly think to make the game simpler and easier for people to run, I don't think as much of it needs to be super defining things. I think it needs to be devoting more of the DMG to people that have not run the game before, mm -hmm. because currently the DMG is a reference for someone running the game, but it's not necessarily a teaching tool for somebody that is coming in completely cold. Yeah. So um, there's a quick mention of the new D20 test rules that while there can be other difficulties, the default is 15. What do you think about having a default DC for tests? I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> actually i should say i hate a 15 being the default it's too high especially at lower levels now i'm no mathematician but if your best skill is a plus five at first level that means you're only going to be succeeding about 50 percent of the time now please don't yell at me math geeks <laughs> I, I don't know how to do the math part of this if 10 is your average roll and i have a plus five i'm only going to be succeeding about half the time 
that seems really harsh at the lower levels. Obviously not as harsh at the higher levels, where people are of a higher proficiency bonus, so their skills are going to be higher, or may have even developed expertise a little further, but still, 15 just seems too high as a default. I tend to default to 12 being my default, unless I know I want it to be harder. Mm -hmm. And I should say, my default is 12 if I want a roll at all. If it's yeah. too much below 12, I generally don't even ask for a roll, but that's that's just mine. I think declaring 15 as a default, it's just going to frustrate players. Yeah, and I think looking at some of the other designs that they've done, I kind of understand why they want a default in there, because there are actually a few more things in the rules that are if you fail instead of just kind of fuzzy like whatever somebody rolls and they want every check to have a default DC if it's something where there is a chance for you to fail. But I do think 15 is high. And actually, this is one of those things, especially since this is in the expert document, I think they are setting this for people that have expertise. And this is what I'm worried about with handing out expertise to so many characters is you start pushing that DC up higher. So only the people that have expertise have a chance to hit it. And that is really screwing with kind of that range of math that 5e has been comfortable with a lot. I suppose, but I do ultimately like the idea of giving bards and rangers expertise in addition to rogues. Yes, but there's also some feats that hand out expertise as well. Yeah. So we're getting to the point to where you might have had one or two players that had expertise in one or two skills to the point to where it's likely that 75% of your party has expertise in multiple skills. And that starts making things a lot wonkier on the DM trying to make something challenging. But, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. Movement rates are defined in the rules glossary, and they don't change a lot, but there are a few changes. Climbing and swimming rates have been handed out as a lot of the class features in some of these, as well as in some of the feats. And you can't change movement types in the same movement. You have to take a dash action in order to be able to change movement. What do you think of these changes, Ange? I don't like that it, an action is required to change movement types because that just seems silly. You know, ultimately, I think this is an area that could end up getting lost in something my group calls addition screen burn, <laughs> where we've got so many little nuances to how movement works that we'll start blending together how it works from different editions and end up with some mishmash of stuff. I don't like the requirement of it being a dash action being used to change movement types because that's just going to make most players not do it. Yeah. If you take their ability to do an action in combat, either their attack action or casting a spell, they're not going to waste that turn just moving Unless they absolutely have to. And I've only ever seen that happen when somebody has to do a double move to get to stuff or get away from stuff. I don't mind them defining the types of movement, but requiring somebody spend an actual action on changing from going from I'm running across the battlefield and now I'm jumping up onto this wall. Ah, that's that's just dumb. You know, movement should be movement. Maybe I could see it for changing to flying or changing to swimming, but uh, I don't like it. It's just weird to me because when I think about it, I see birds all the time, hop, hop, jump, fly. It's yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they stopped and took a uh, 
took a dash axe in there. Um, and it actually reminded me of like that combat you were describing in your campaign. If you have Sahuagin and they do a um a withdraw action and then they walk over to a body of water, do they then just stop until their next turn? Yeah. Or do they jump in and start swimming? I mean it would seem like Yeah, that's that's not how movement works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I understand that in the jump they have clarified that if you have ten feet of movement to get a running jump, well what's to say I couldn't have that be, you know, like twenty feet of movement to jump. Jump is in here a little bit later, but yeah, there's some weird things going on with movement that I'm not really sure what they're trying to what they're trying to fix, which is, you know, what I think about with a lot of things like I get defining some things so that you don't have to always refer to them. But at the same time, I'm not sure what you're trying to fix by adding in little changes like this. I'm not seeing the abuse case as much. The other thing that I don't like with this is that they define these movement rates because they added a lot of movement rates to classes. So in other words, if you're a ranger, you get to a certain level, you get swim and climb speeds. The rogue um, thief gets a climb speed. Class features don't bother me too much unless you're giving out too many, because I think maybe giving rangers swim and climb both, you know, maybe give them one or the other at one level and maybe. But the other thing is there's a few feats. You're an athlete, so you have a climb speed. And the problem with that is, is the way climb currently works in the rules. If you have a climb speed, you climb. You're not making any checks. So basically, if you have a flat surface next to you, you know, like just looking, you know, in the real world, you could walk up next to a house and just walk up the side of <laughs> side of a house. <laughs> the only thing that a climb speed doesn't let you do is walk on the underside of a horizontal surface. That's literally the only clarification that they put in there. And I don't like taking all those athletic checks out of things because, again, it goes back to that thing we were talking about with the expertise. It's like, what's funny is the ranger, I, they took out things like you can't get lost because those were absolutes that were making things a little bit too challenging. But then they're adding in other absolutes like movement rates. So it's it's weird to me. I don't mind certain characters getting a climb speed. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Oh, yeah. Like, it makes sense to me that a ranger would be good climbing yeah. a tree or climbing a mountain at the same time the surface of whatever you're climbing has to have some some ability to be climbed yeah you can't climb a sheer surface unless you're a character like a grung who has sticky hands and can frog your way up i don't even care like kind of implying that a ranger might be supernaturally good at doing that climb speed when they reach a certain level because they're rangers and they're naturey and they do have some magic ability that doesn't bother me that much. It's when you give it away in a feat because somebody is a really good mountain climber. Yeah. It's like, that's that doesn't feel right. The other thing that's weird about that is I was picturing that climb speed. That's a neat thing for portraying, say, like somebody that can parkour, except you can't. Because according to this, unless you take the dash action, you can't <laughs> walk up to somebody, then run around them up the wall and then come up behind them. You would have to stop and take the dash action to do that. <laughs> After having watched the latest episode of She-Hulk, you can parkour going down <laughs> better than you parkour going up. All right. Well, speaking of movement rates, let's jump to the next topic. Jumping has been reworked so that it isn't automatic based on your strength score, but requires an athletic check. You can always jump five feet either direction, which is weird. But then you make a DC 10 check to see how much further you can jump beyond that. And technically, if you roll lower than a 10, you fail, but you still jump five feet. But this is an action now. This is not something that you can do as part of your movement. You can't jump further than your movement rate, but it doesn't subtract from your movement rate. 
So, Ange, how do you feel about jumping? Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same as with movement in general. Please don't tie it to an action. It should be <laughs> a movement thing. Mm -hmm. I really don't like things that kind of guide the players into the players are not going to do this. They're not going to give up an action. We just talked about this. Like, my, I know my players. My players will look at this and go, I can either walk 30 feet and do a thing or walk a little bit and then jump a little bit and still only move 30 feet, but then not get to do anything. I'm not doing that. I'm going to stay here and do a thing. Yeah, definitely. I did kind of like changing jump from being a strength check to being a skill check. Mm -hmm. Tying it to athletics instead of tying it to strength. Though, to be completely honest, as your eternal rogue player, I kind of wish they would also include acrobatics in that. Um, I think, though, I, mean, I know this doesn't entirely help, but they do let you use athletics with um, dexterity, I think, the way it's written. Do they? I think I so. May, I may have missed yeah. that. Let Dex also be involved in the jumping. Like, I get, I get that your long jump, you know, or your high jump may have a lot of strength put behind it, but that Dex is also in there in a lot of tumbling, which involves moving a fair amount of distance jumping. But yeah, please don't tie it to an action. And honestly, I wouldn't mind these new rules if you just changed it to say, however far you jump, you subtract that from your movement rate. Yeah. I would be fine with that. Instead of making it an action, it's just something you do as part of your movement. And if your roll was so high that you exceed your movement rate, that's all you jump. Yeah. You roll where you could jump 10 feet and you only have five feet left. You literally can only jump five feet. I've never had a player try and cheat movement to basically say, okay, I run, I run my 30 feet and then I'm going to jump so I get an extra 10 feet. It's like, I've never had anybody ever do that. Here's where I have to tell a story and this is what I worry about. I had run 5e a few times before this, but this was one of the first times I had gotten to play uh, in a 5e game, and I made a Goliath monk. And I was so happy with that character because I could just do things. It wasn't like in 3.5 where it was like, oh, I can't do this because I have to have this feet chain to let me do this. It just mm -hmm. let me kind of be awesome and athletic and heroic right off the bat. I had the party's halfling and gnome, <laughs> and I was carrying both of them. And I wasn't encumbered because I'm a Goliath and we needed to escape a keep. I looked at the wall and I looked at what I could normally jump as a Goliath. And then I looked at what I could jump if I spent a key point and said, I can literally get us out of this keep if I run at that wall and jump over it. And I did. And I ran at that wall and I jumped over it. And it just felt awesome because it felt like this amazing, you know, thing that my character could do. And now I couldn't. Yeah. That's that's the kind of thing I don't want to take away from players, because it was such a relief coming from uh, 3.5 to 5 and saying, OK, this heroic thing that I can do, I can just do. And kind of going back to this, there's these rules that will stop you from doing these awesome things once in a while. Yeah. I mean, how many feats did I have to take to get the ability to move, attack somebody and then move again? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The spring attack chain. Yeah, it's like, no, no, they just did all away, did away with all that. This is what you can do. And I'm like, oh, this is so much nicer. And it's I feel like some of the like you said, that rules tightening is creeping back in and I don't like it. So there is also a change to the light weapon quality that has some ramifications for combat. Very specifically, if you are using a weapon with the light quality, you can make an attack with the light weapon as part of the attack action instead of using your bonus action. 
So what do you think about this for dual wielders? Not that you have ever played a character that, that is a dual wielder. <laughs> I kind of love this. Dual wielding in 5e was something that took a bit for my group to figure out, since it's not as clear cut as it was in previous editions. Now, mm. it, admittedly, uh, it didn't require feats or class abilities or whole other slew of barriers, but it was very vague. And as a result, I think most of us just kind of like, well, I'd love it if I could be a dual-wielding rogue or a dual-wielding ranger here, but I'm not sure how this works, so I'll just go down this route instead. More recently, we have gotten into it and started using it, but it takes away the rogue being able to do other cool stuff with their bonus action. Mm -hmm. So having it just be part of the attack action is going to definitely make it more fun, and I don't think it's going to hurt you know i don't think it's going to change the damage output that much because generally speaking it's a light weapon when we talk about rogues there are some things there about sneak attack <laughs> but you still only yeah. get sneak attack on one of those two attacks yeah. i mean you could probably argue that over the course of the campaign if you're not having to make that choice to use the bonus action you might once in a while get an extra attack in and that extra attack may be the one that actually gets sneak attack because the first attack misses yeah but you're talking like math over the course of the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that I really had was that, you know, at one point I was thinking most classes only have two weapon fighting as they're, you know, using a bonus action. You know, they don't get any other bonus actions. But yeah. I mean, I'm not that worried about that. I kind of like this. I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, it it's one of those ones where, you know, maybe if I see it in play and it's changing things more than I thought it would. But really, it works just like two weapon fighting, except it's not taking your bonus action. And this being the the expert, you know, thing, it makes sense because that does affect rogues and rangers both. Just in general, I do wish there were other bonus actions that other classes could do. Because I know that's something we often run into is like somebody will look at like, oh, I can't do an action this round, but I also don't have anything that really works as a bonus action. So... Yeah, it's funny because now that, you know, I've played enough other games, you start seeing like, you know, like in Star Trek with your minor action, you can aim. Yeah. You get bonuses on being able to reroll something that didn't come up really well. I, I think that's more of a bigger problem than letting rogues and rangers actually do stuff with their bonus actions, which they kind of need to have freed up a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I was thinking, which might be interesting, is, you know, technically, if you do this and you have someone take Warcaster, you might be able to have, like, a uh, a cleric that can get off uh, two-weapon fighting and still use Healing Word in combat. <laughs> Some new actions get defined in the rules glossary. Uh, search and study. Search is for wisdom-based skills. Study is for intelligence-based skills. Quantifying them as actions allows them to be referenced in some class abilities and feats, which allows characters with those feats or class abilities to use them as bonus actions instead of actions. What kind of effect do you think this will have on the game? waffling a little on this one i've always been pretty free with players being able to make that skill check to understand something in the middle of a fight and not have it impact their actual action provided they don't take too long with it you know if it was a default bonus action for everyone i think i'd be fine with that but requiring it take an action if you don't have that special class feature i'll be honest i'm kind of concerned about that mm-hmm Initially, when I was read it, I didn't like the idea of these non-combat actions being called actions. And then I realized what they're referring to is somebody being able to 
take a look at an opponent, make an insight check and understand something more about that character. I appreciated the way they broke down each skill in the rules glossary to talk about the type of results you can get from using that skill role, but I'm, uns I'm uncertain about it actually requiring an action. Again, they're doing all these things that require actions, and I'm sorry, players are going to want to hit something or cast a spell. They're not going to do things that take that opportunity away from them. I get like very specific skill functions. I get assigning an action to them. Like if you're going to say, if you're trying to pinpoint an invisible opponent and that takes an action, I get that. But they're trying to define the whole action and then just saying that you can do this. But then that redefines every use of that into an action that can then be turned into a bonus action. I think it's it's too much standardization. Yeah. The other thing that I was thinking about that you were talking about this in terms of this not being a combat action, but I'll put this out there. Like if you have people go into a room, I have often said we're going to search the room and I'm kind of OK with people just generally describing, you know, I'm going to look through everything. I'm going to look through all the drawers. I'm going to move the furniture. And I will usually say, OK, 10 minutes, give me a roll. The problem with this is by saying action, it's saying you can search as an action. Are you going to have players now that are going to say, I walk into the room, I take an action, I searched it. And I realize that is a thing where, yes, you know, you're just being ridiculous. I don't know that I'm being ridiculous because I played three five. It's the problem with tying it to an action. An action is something done in combat. While these things they've described in search and study can be things that can be done in combat to give the player a you know, better understanding of what they're dealing with or other issues in the battlefield. It's like, in general, these are not things that are done in combat that often. Like we said, with the with the invisibility thing, there's certain things I think you can't overdefine. They're trying to put things in boxes and then point you at the box. And sometimes you just need to describe the corner cases that you really want things to work for. Yeah. I'm not upset for saying that search and study work for intelligence or wisdom. It turns to me like into self-perpetuating design, which I saw a lot in 3.5, where it's like, once you take this thing and you say it takes an action, now you can de design feats and, and, uh, and uh, abilities that give you this as a bonus action. It's like, but what are you getting for defining these feats and class abilities for yeah. this? Like, is it really that much neater to make someone take a feat so they can do this thing? Or would you just maybe, like you were saying, if you're going to define it all, just say it's a bonus action for everybody. You know, and honestly, you make it a bonus action for everybody. Now people have something to do with their bonus actions. Yeah, it's I think it's too broad what they're trying to do here. It's too broad, but at the same time, it's confining. Well, yeah, by too broad, I mean it affects too many rules by confining it into this very specific thing. Yeah. Speaking of skills and difficulty classes and all of these things that we've been building up to, um, there are several definitions surrounding the hide action and the condition of being hidden. One of the biggest changes is that to hide in the first place, you need to make a DC 15 stealth check. Although the total of the stealth check that you rolled is your DC for someone actively looking to find your character. And also, if you are a hidden character and initiative starts, you get advantage on your initiative rolls. So as somebody, again, who has one of these stealthier characters in the game, um, how do you think this might affect gameplay? I actually don't mind the advantage on initiative part. That I kind of appreciate. I mean, generally speaking, your your sneaky rogue types are going to be higher up in the initiative order anyway. But still, I like this part. It actually might encourage players to hide more often. I don't think I've ever hidden 
before a combat started, because there's just never really any usefulness to it. But, like I said quite vehemently earlier, I do not like the default of a DC-15 for checks. That seems to penalize the players, and I don't think it makes any sense in a scene where it should be your skill versus their perception. It should be the rogue's skill to hide themselves versus that other character's perception. I don't like that they're like saying it's a DC 15. And then like this, although the total of the stealth check is the DC. It, what? Just just have the just stop. You're making this more complicated than it needs to be. And what's interesting about that is I've looked up like there are a lot of monsters that have a passive perception lower than 15. So you have now made it harder to sneak up on all of those monsters. Although it does kind of feel like maybe they're getting rid of passive perception, which I don't know. This is one of those things where it's like only seeing part of the playtest maybe doesn't give us the whole idea. But even at that, like, for example, I do a lot of group skill checks for all of you guys to see, you know, did you remain hidden? And while it's not likely that um, our our big dragonborn uh, knight and... uh, (laughs) Our dwarf and our dwarf are our dwarf going to. Can. There are times when they do make that stealth check because you know it's only like a DC ten or whatever, and they're probably way less likely to hit that DC fifteen now. So you're probably going to be failing a lot more of those group uh, stealth checks if we use this. I do like you said. I kind of like the advantage on initiative because it helps clean up that whole like, well, if I'm hidden but the rest of the party isn't, technically we don't have surprise. So there's no point in me hiding if anybody in the party is going to be seen. And now it kind of makes sense for the rogue to, you know, let the fighter be loud and, you know, declare that they are going to attack these enemies while the rogue is carefully, you know, hiding themselves. Because then the rogue might, you know, get higher in initiative and be able to pop out and surprise dagger to face. So, yeah, that aspect of it, I don't mind. Um, The other thing that I did want to bring up, though, is it specifically calls that advantage to initiative surprise. And that is also making me wonder if they're getting rid of the way surprise works in 5e. Yeah. They don't say it in this document, but that is specifically called surprise. And I'm wondering if surprise is just going to be advantage on initiative now. I think we're going to talk about this a little later, but I think this is a weakness of the way they're sharing the rules glossary is because if you are referencing surprise, surprise should be in the rules glossary. Yep. And it's not because they're only giving us what is relevant to what they've presented to us. And it's missing some pieces. Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually wouldn't be too upset if they got rid of the way surprise works now, because they've clarified if they know anyone in your party is there, nobody is surprising anyone that first round. Yeah. So either a whole side is surprising you or they're not. And this at least lets the hidden people on both sides kind of get into that stealth game a little bit more even if they don't get a whole round to just run roughshod over everybody while they are unable to act. So I don't know. I'll I'll be interested to see how that plays out. So we get a new definition for heroic inspiration, which changes the trigger from uh, rolling a 20 to rolling a one. So when you heroically fail (laughs) the worst that you possibly can, you're inspired. But it also no longer goes away on a long rest. So what do you think of this, Ange? I really, really, really do not like it on a one. (laughs) I mean, this is pure emotion here this is not based on logic because logically speaking having it tied to a one having it tied to a 20 as long as it's tied to a number on the dot you could tie it to 10 and Mm -hmm. whatever but i really don't like it on a one um i get that it could be a reward to make up for a really bad roll, 
but I don't feel that's very inspiring. If you really want it to be inspiration, you give it to them on the 20 where, yes, everyone is now pumped because you got that 20 and you got mm-hmm. that really, you know, really awesome role to do that really cool thing you were trying to do. Um, if they're going to tie it to a die roll, just tie it to the nat 20. I do like that it doesn't go away on a long rest anymore. I disliked humans getting it after a long rest because it felt that either everyone should get it or no one should get it. And I think in one of the videos they talked about how they are still kind of toying with the idea of having people like have inspiration after a long rest. But for right now, it's still considered part of the the human abilities. Yeah. Which I still say should be tied to whether or not they have coffee. But uh <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, inspiration is one of those things I currently house rule because it doesn't really work well as written. The language changed a little bit in this rules glossary where it said that I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't remember the exact language, but it's like it's advantage that you roll once you've seen the result of the previous roll, which is like just call it a re-roll. It's more in line with some of the other languages they use where it's like, you can choose to apply this before you know the result of the roll. Like, once you roll it, but you don't know whether you passed or failed, you can do this. And honestly, that's the way I did. That's the way I do inspiration all the time anyway. I do not know anyone. I have not played with a huge number of people. I've played D&D with probably a half a dozen other GMs. Nobody has ever done it rules as written. Everyone has always done it as a re-roll. And and honestly, that's also why I stop myself a lot of times when I almost tell you whether or not something succeeded, because I'll stop for a second and go, does anybody want to you know use anything that might change this result? Because <laughs> technically, I know if I say you failed, you technically can't use it. I even mean, though... I'll, I'll admit, I'll fully admit I'm, I'm a huge softy GM. And if somebody <laughs> goes to use their inspiration and they don't need to, I'm going to stop them. Because mm-hmm. I'm just like, I don't want to be that dick that makes you you. It's bad enough. It is bad enough to use your inspiration and then still roll like crap. Yeah. The player's role is iffy and they're considering it. Uh, I know. I know I'm making a lot of angry GMs out there, but <laughs> I'm a huge softie. I want my players to feel awesome. I don't want them to get super frustrated. It is interesting. It doesn't come up in the inspiration part of it, but there's a few like class abilities and things that are now starting to say, if you do this and you still fail, you didn't spend... Yes. This thing. Yes. And I'm kind of interested to see if that makes it into inspiration as well. That would be nice. It, w- it would be nice if you didn't waste it, because like I said, I actually have one friend who is running his D&D games using inspiration like Mutants and Masterminds uses their their hero point. In Mutants and Masterminds, you spend a hero point to reroll. If you roll a one to a ten, you add a ten to that number. So if you roll a nine, it's like you got a 19 on the die. Um, so actually, the worst thing you can roll on the die is is an 11, because then it's like, you, yeah, you, you, rolled, you may have rolled better, but you still just got an 11. <laughs> yeah. So. In Mutants and Masterminds, which is generally a super heroic game, it leads to those moments of like, no, no, I really need to be a badass here. Boom. Especially when you know you rolled low and you just need to bump it a little bit past that midline to know that you succeeded. Yeah. Um, The only other thing I was going to say with getting it on a one instead of a 20 is I would be more likely to call that determination instead of inspiration. Like I'm not going to do that again. I know when I have uh, tripped and fallen on my face, I don't feel inspired. Although (laughs) I might be really, really determined 
not to trip and fall on my face again. <laughs> they're totally not going to change the name, though. No, they're not. But we'll see if this is the final trigger for inspiration. That might still be evolving. Yeah. So exhaustion gets super reworked in this. Um, instead of having different penalties at each level of exhaustion and then dying at like the sixth level of exhaustion, I think. Uh, I don't. It, it was always so complicated. I never dealt with it. You you now have the exhausted condition, which means you're just keeping track of how many levels of exhaustion you have and roll and subtracting that from your D20 tests. How do you feel about this? I So, hey, we're not going to be negative Nancy's for a little bit. <laughs> I thought this change was pretty cool. I actually included it in the exploration rules I wrote up for my Zendrick campaign. It simplifies things while also making it more impactful for players. This is kind of brilliant. In my Zendrick rules, what I'm doing is every day they're exploring the wilds. They have to make a roll versus a save versus the Traveler's Curse. Mm -hmm. If they fail the roll, they get a level of exhaustion because they're just they don't know which way is up. They don't know which way is the right way to go, mm -hmm. you know, and it just kind of pings them there for you are you are dealing with the curse. You don't know where which way to go. And I like this because it's much more easy for the players to understand. It's much more impactful if they keep doing things that give them levels of exhaustion. I don't know anyone who's treated, I think once in all of the times I've played 5e has exhaustion ever come into play. And that was on some sort of area of effect spell that the warlock had that gave levels of exhaustion if the people didn't get out of the area of effect. Jared could probably name the spell. I can't. But <laughs> anyway, I like this one. Honestly, the original, you know, the 2014 version of Exhaustion, it becomes a death spiral. Because right off the bat, you're at disadvantage making skill checks. And a lot of times the way you get Exhaustion is by failing skill checks. And then it affects movement, and then it affects, you know, attacks and saves. Considering that... Being in a fight and being at three hit points does not alter anything. I think it makes more sense for exhaustion just to be this widening gap instead of like a big, you know, set of conditions that wallop you. It also yeah. makes me, since you don't die until you get 11 or more of these, I am way more likely to use exhaustion when it makes sense to just say, nope, you're exhausted until you get a long rest. Or even say, you can still take a long rest, but you can't get rid of exhaustion until you're in a more comfortable place. Right. I think it actually makes exhaustion do what I kind of wish it did originally, because I like the concept of exhaustion from the start. Right. But I like this way better. I, I could see doing something like, OK, you've got three levels of exhaustion. If you take a long rest, you lose one of those. You still have two levels. As someone who just got back from a convention, <laughs> it wasn't even that exhausting. You, you need some time afterwards to truly recover. There's a reason we're recording this on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday. <laughs> and um, this also mirrors how they did stress in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which is replacing, well, it, it's an optional rule that replaces how they did short and long-term, uh, you know, insanity mm -hmm. from the DMG, which I like that. I like that they both work the same way. I think at first they probably didn't want to do this because a big goal going from third edition to fifth was that they didn't want to do a lot of fiddly negative two, negative three, you know, here yeah. and there. But this is one of the few places where that happens. And I think it's a lot easier to keep in mind my exhaustion score is three, so I subtract three, than it is saying I have the exhausted condition. Is that a negative one or a negative two? Exactly. 
So there is a blink and you'll miss it change to long rest compared to uh, previous glossary definitions. Uh, instead of getting your hit points back and half your hit dice, now you get all of your hit dice back. And this is in addition to removing a level of exhaustion, healing all ability score damage, and resetting hit point maximums that have been lo lowered. What do you feel about this, Ange? I'm honestly not sure how I feel about this one. I've gotten used to the way a long rest means everyone resets back to full. I'm not sure if this if this changes the feel of 5e in a good way or a bad way. I suppose it does create another resource management thing that players have to manage. You know, if they have multiple encounters in a day and they've already used a bunch of their hit dice. I play a fighter battle master in mm -hmm. a campaign and there are times where I cannot get back to full hit points using my hit dice. It's basically me using some of my hit dice and our cleric giving us, you know, some healing. So I'm not sure how I feel about this one yet. I don't know if I hate it and I don't know if I like it. One of, one of the things that a lot of people have complained about is that, that 5e is a little too easy on characters, that it's too easy to just breeze through fights. But I actually kind of like that because I like to be the big damn hero. I think what's interesting to me is this actually reminded me of something I was going to talk about during your campaign journal is it's really hard to make random encounters mean anything because once somebody takes a long rest, there's no consequences for that encounter. So unless you hit them with such a hard encounter that maybe they won't survive it, there's kind of no point in it other than just being a storytelling exercise. But I still like having them because sometimes they are fun as a storytelling exercise. And sometimes it lets you do neat things like trying to knock people off wyverns. <laughs> this is like reinforcing that idea that unless you're doing something that is intentionally, you must do this many encounters before you are allowed a long rest. It is really making it hard for a single event to have consequences. Mm hmm. And honestly, I would almost rather go the opposite route and say your hit points don't reset and you get all your hit dice back. The other thing with that is I've seen, I think part of what's going on with this is not just because it'll be simpler, but because they've added some class features and some feats that let you burn hit dice outside of short rests. Mm -hmm. And I think they're afraid you're going to run out of them. But at the same time, I've seen lots of people that don't get short rests that are upset that they have these hit dice that they can't use every single day because they never take short rests. Yeah. So I don't know. It's that it really is going to be kind of a let's see what this looks like over time. This is one I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this one. The other thing, though, that I have seen that was an interesting discussion about this rule because of long rests is the way exhaustion works now. Maybe we don't need to do ability score damage and we just need to convert ability score damage into exhaustion damage. Mm. I mean, that is kind of an intriguing way to uh, switch that around because you're still taking penalties, but you're not refiguring things based on your ability scores. Yeah. And I know that's a huge pain in D&D combat can get slow anyway. And mm -hmm. like, I hate ability damage for how it slows things down even further as the player has to sit there and figure like, okay, now that dropped me to this, which is now going to change all of these other things that I have to calculate. And it's like, <sighs> mm -hmm. so now uh, a lot of the rules that were in the dungeon master's guide for determining NPC reactions to player characters have been moved into the rules glossary as player facing rules under the influence action. You see any problems with this, Ange? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so action again like i said earlier action is so tied to combat it's hard to imagine being able to use the influence action in the middle of a fight 
I mean, I suppose that there are edge cases, you know, and it's always really cool when you can have your 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 social character get everyone to pause for a second and talk things down and stir things up. But most of the time you're in the middle of fight. No one's slowing down to listen to you, you know, talk to them about how maybe we should talk about this over a drink or two. <laughs> One of the other things I didn't like about this is they, they put in these DCs of affecting characters of various attitudes, but they're so low. Yeah. They're so low compared to this DC 15 default they slapped on everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they put a DC 10 on making a hostile creature do no harm. Huh? Like, that does not track for me. That does not make any sense, because a hostile creature wants to stab you in the face. <laughs> hostile. You know, they are truly hostile to the, you. They want to see you dead, and you're saying, all I need is for my bard with a DC uh, plus eight to their persuasion roll, make a DC 10 and they can smooth that down and make them not want to hit me. And they tied it to an action, which insinuates that it's something that can be done in combat. I don't like any of this. I think this was very poorly thought out. I think when it wasn't called an action, but it was given as guidelines in the DMG, that's fine. You're telling a, a DM, here are some guidelines for things that someone could do with this skill, if that makes sense. Yeah. When you make it an action that is player facing, you are saying these are the rules for this thing. If you are a player, you can expect this to work this way. And, and yeah, once you start like I, I can see that I can see a player saying, well, I'm going to talk this bugbear out of eating my face. <laughs> we, had, <laughs> and, we had so many conversations with <laughs> the last play test about how you don't want your bard to seduce the dragon just because yeah. they rolled a natural 20. <laughs> Yet then they go and put this in there, which essentially is even worse. And also, thank you to our editor, Chris, because he brought this up on Misdirected Mark because he saw my comments on this in my blog about this being player facing in the setting expectations and everything. So, But the other problem with all of that is that it, it just sets up too much where people are thinking this is how things are going to work. And my DM is doing it wrong if it's not working the way this action says it works. And you can say all you want to that, well, the DM is, is running the game and they can make judgment calls. But once you put something in player facing rules, that's what they're expecting out of the rules. I have a GM I will not play with because he would not let me use sneak attack as it was written for my character class because he didn't feel it fit the situation. Mm hmm. I'm still angry about that. Oh, yeah. If you put a rule in front of a player that says they can do this thing, the GM's pulling it away and saying, no, I don't like this. You can't do that thing. It's gonna cause some rough feathers. And, you know, I've talked about it before on this show, but I love, like, the audience rules that are in, like, Ruins of Sambarum, the 5e adaption, and in the uh, the uh, Adventures in Middle-Earth. Like, those types of things make role-playing a much more interesting thing while still using checks. And this is basically, again, you know, turning that back into one check from one character that probably has uh, expertise. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to blow that DC 10 out of the water. And on top of that, um, what was a DC 20 to tell a hostile creature? Hey, I know your boss wouldn't be happy if he got murdered, but just stand here and let me murder your boss. OK, I'm not going to help you, but I'm not going to take any action to stop you. <laughs> That's not how this works. <laughs> And it also doesn't take into effect, like, should this creature have a stronger force of personality? Are you going to run into Strahd Von Zarovich and say, <laughs> hey, Strahd, please don't eat me. OK, that's a DC 10. Like, there's nothing telling you how to scale that. There have been a lot of negative thoughts 
on some of these rules so far. And I, I don't want to be an, a naysayer because I like that they're putting this out there. We're playtesting. There was actually a lot I liked about the character classes, but this particular section just feels really poorly thought out. And honestly, part of this is just to feel out people and to hear what they're saying. So like, by no means should anyone take me reading this saying these people are terrible designers. That's not what I'm saying <laughs> at all. They're trying to do a playtest. So they're casting a really wide net and they're trying to see what sticks. And even when I think things are bad ideas, sometimes you need to let someone know it's a bad idea. I have had bad ideas before and oh, I need to tell people and have somebody say, that seems like a bad idea. Maybe you shouldn't do it up front. Many times in my life, if somebody would have if I would have had a chance to playtest life decisions, I probably wouldn't have made some of the ones that I did. <laughs> well, and I mean, as we've already seen, they already reacted to the community reaction mm -hmm. about critical hits. Oh, yeah. Please, when they open up the survey, give them your feedback. That's what it's there for. So there are some redefined spells in the glossary, which is another thing that's a little weird with the glossary format. Bark Skin is no longer a concentration spell, and it grants temporary hit points instead of setting your armor class, and Guidance is now a reaction that is triggered by a failed roll, and a given person can only benefit from Guidance once per day. What do you think about those, Ange? I actually didn't really have a problem with these two. To be completely honest, I don't think I've ever seen anyone actually use Bark Skin in 5e. I saw it used all the time in 3.0, 3.5. I want to say I saw it used in 4e. It, I, don't I don't even think, know what it did in 4 Yeah, I don't even remember what it did. I just vaguely recall, I think we had a bard in that one campaign and they used it all the time. But I don't think I've seen anybody use it here. And I've played with several druids and or rangers that mm -hmm. should have used it. So I think this will make it more useful, especially the taking it away from concentration. Yeah. That's huge. That will be a huge help. No matter how they frame it, whether it's a change to your AC or temporary hit points. I know you have some issues with it being temporary hit points, but I like this. I also like mm -hmm. what they did with Guidance. I don't want to say I've ever seen Guidance necessarily abused, but I have seen it used a lot once it was figured out how to use. So the, the changing it to a once per day per character may end up making it a little too limiting for a cantrip. This could be an issue with accounting, but like maybe have it be proficiency bonus per character per day but it also might encourage people that have a similar bonus to swap out trying something too instead right. of just relying on one person to do it yeah i i do like the fact that it's um a reaction mm -hmm. i mean there's a little bit in the wording there calling it guidance and having it be something yes. you do when like oh you're not doing that quite right here like, do it this way um like being inspired when you fall on your face yes yeah exactly <laughs> but they're not going to change the name of guidance yeah. they're, they're just not but i don't have a problem with the change these two changes yeah honestly um you mentioned my problem with bark skin and actually my problem with bark skin is less with this particular spell i think this particular spell is fine it's just there's a lot of temporary hit points flying around mm -hmm. and the way temporary hit points work in 5e is you get the highest source of them. They don't stack. So having so many sources of temporary hit points, if you have a lot of people that have different ways of providing temporary hit points, it's like a bottleneck <laughs> where it's not doing the party any good. I suppose in a certain degree, it's so like one of the issues with 3035 was the um, the AC stacking. Mm -hmm. um, you get a you get bonus to your AC for this. You get a bonus to your AC for that. And like figuring out which ones actually applied, which ones didn't. And they simplified mm -hmm. all of that. For 5e, which I appreciated. 
we have a running joke uh, in my my group about you know what what do you think this is Pathfinder or something <laughs> when we get to talking about ACs, but I get what you're saying with the stacking of the temporary hit points because mm-hmm. that could get confusing. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, it's not a thing with this spell. That is more of a thing with temporary hit points in general and how often they've been using them as features recently. Um, honestly, I would almost kind of like to see it work maybe like how the uh, Goliath and the Hadozi abilities work, where they get to roll a die and subtract that from incoming damage. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of like that mechanic. You know, it's kind of like you you steal yourself to get hit and then it just doesn't do that much damage to you. And I kind of like that idea of maybe bark skin. You steal yourself and the bark actually grows thicker and then it shatters when someone hits you. I like I said, I didn't run into a lot of abusive guidance either, but I have heard a lot of people like just automatically assume you're always going to get that extra bonus from having uh, guidance up because you have a cleric with guidance. And yeah, I think once something starts feeling like it's automatic, even when it takes an action to do Maybe that's not a good thing for the game, you know? (laughs) All right. So in general, how do you feel about the rules glossary being used as the uh, way to present these rules? I think this is going to get cumbersome and a little confusing in the long run. I get why they're attaching it to the playtest document. I don't really like the idea of having to scan through it for every time for little tweaks or look through previous docs to see stuff that hasn't changed. The fact that it can be a little difficult to figure out, okay, what's changed, what hasn't changed, you know, it's it's mm. figuring all that out is like, eh, this is going to be a little cumbersome. I'm, I'm not sure how I would recommend they fix that unless they had like a, you know, an actual rules, separate rules glossary document that they highlight, you know, like just put everything in it and highlight the changes as you come out with each new iteration. Yeah, because they've specifically said the glossary in each of these um, on their Arcana supersedes the previous yes. one. Um, but it is, it's tricky because I think the unearthed Arcana format worked great when you were just playtesting subclasses, feats, spells, ancestries. Yeah. But the more you work rules changes into it, the more cumbersome, like you said, I, it just gets, it gets messy. And I wish they would do something like I've seen with a lot of like errata or FAQs where maybe Highlight the stuff that changed from the last version of the glossary in red, just so that you know, okay, that changed, that changed, that changed the rest of this. I'm already, you know, I already know that. Now, I know I completely missed the D&D Next playtesting. Did you also miss the D&D Next stuff? I looked through like a packet or two, and I didn't really do a lot of playtesting. It was really funny because at the time I'm like, I'm probably not going to go back to (laughs) D&D. I'm probably not going to fall in love with this edition and it be my favorite edition of D&D. We are probably going to go a little bit long here in this episode just because I kind of want to touch on the spell lists and the feats. We're not going to go too in depth in them, but I don't think we could pull a full show out of those. And I want to get to the uh, classes next time we talk. And the classes is going to go long anyway, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anyway. (laughs) But for the... The arcane, divine, and primal spell list. We get the full list from zero to ninth level that we had mentioned in the first one. Um, is there anything noteworthy or surprising to you from those lists? Not really. I don't have too much to say about the spell lists. Um, I still like the idea that they're adding primal to the mix of divine and arcane. I like that split mm-hmm. between those three types. Um, I think narratively that's going to be pretty fun 
to dive into, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, honestly, until they tell me what each spell does, I don't have a whole <laughs> lot to say of what school, you know, like which which type they put it in. The only thing that I think is really interesting is I don't want to get too far ahead into the actual classes, but it's it isn't just a simple like Rangers use Primal. It's Rangers use these schools from Primal, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. And I was not expecting that level of specificity in uh, how they were going to use these. Um, I it's interesting that and I actually did a document looking at this. They changed the schools for a lot of spells to make it easier for them to say that you don't get to use these things. Like, for example, they changed all the healing spells so that they are not evocation anymore because they don't want somebody to get healing spells and fireballs, you know? <laughs> so somewhere Eileen's uh, character Ivy is going, why not? <laughs> why not both? <laughs> I, um, I like having the the definitions of primal and divine and arcane because I think you can do some fun things with like spells that affect someone that has that personal thing. Or you could say that, you know, like in an adventure that someone is cut off from a divine resource or something. You don't want to do it for too long. But I mean, I think that's cool. But the way they're using it here, I'm going to have to see some more because it feels like they're trying to simplify it. But then when you look at some of the classes, it doesn't look as simple as, as what they did. Yeah, here. honestly, I think once they're they're going to have to give us more information on the spells when they give us when they give us the arcane classes, mm-hmm. you know, when they when they give us wizard, warlock and sorcerer, they're going to have to deal with the spells when they give it when they give us the cleric and the druid. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to give us more on the spells um, just so we yeah, can I- see what's available to those characters. Yeah, I'm wondering works. how many spells actually get changed because that could be a huge document when you release, you know, uh-huh. if you release your your priest uh, document with, you know, your clerics and paladins and and druids. And then you have all of the primal and divine spell list in there if they're going to make tweaks to all of them. Yeah, Interesting I imagine they'll, give us, they'll only give us what they make tweaks to. But Pro- well, yeah, I'm just wondering still. how many things they actually make tweaks to. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, um, it's it's interesting, but there's not a lot I can say about that. Um, we'll talk about that way more when we get into the classes. Yeah. Um, this Unearthed Arcana also contains our first look at higher level feats with 4th and 20th level feats included. Is there anything uh, about these feats that you would like to touch upon? So let's be honest. Feats got a bit overwhelming in 3035. <laughs> I was really OK with them taking a step back from them in 5th edition. But that said, one of the common complaints I've heard from folks about 5e is that it's hard to customize your character with the way class and subclass work. You can do a little bit of thing here, but like once you've chosen your subclass, your choices you make for your class are kind of taken away from you. And like giving us feats back or making putting more of an emphasis on feats again will help provide a little bit more of that customization that i think some folks are missing um so i'm okay with them making feats a more integral part of the game as long as they are careful with what they do with it um you know we've been exploring the feats a lot more often in these last couple of years in my group but at the same time i really don't want to go back to 3.0 where there were just literally hundreds of feats yeah 
to look through. <laughs> um, I do like that they've changed the level ability boost to be a feat you choose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes more sense and will probably encourage more players to consider a feat instead, because unless mm-hmm. you need that plus two bump to a stat to get it to 18 to give you the plus four bonus in your primary stat, there's no reason not to take a feat that'll still give you a plus one bump mm-hmm. in something and other cool stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't say too much about the epic level feats because I've only ever played one character that got that high. <laughs> uh, you know, and honestly, I don't recall getting to use her epic level ability that often. It was, I was kind of part time in that campaign. Mm-hmm. So my character got to level up with everyone else, but I was yeah. kind of like a, um, I was like that character that was in a main part of the cast in the early seasons of the show, (laughs) but by the end was, you know, special guest star (laughs) bringing my recurring character back. It was, it was in our our Tiamat campaign. And so I got to be level 20 and fight Tiamat, but I didn't really get to play her that much as a 20th level character, you know? So I do hope speaking to what I said before, that if they go this route with feats, they're careful about not saturating the game with too many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't want to look through a hundred feet again. Ever. Yeah, I know. That's that's a pain. I'm not a big fan of trying to calibrate feats to different levels. Here it looks like the big difference is first level feats don't give you a plus one ability score on top of what it does. But if they do start trying to do like eighth level feats or twelfth level feats, I'm not a fan of the idea that like this eighth level feat has to be more awesome than a first and a fourth level feat. Yeah. I get it for the 20th level ones. That's fine. You know, I don't mind the 20th level ones because you're not getting those until the end of the game. Um, But the thing that struck me about these fourth level feats is if you're just, if the only difference is that fourth level feats give you a plus one and then do whatever they're going to do, why don't you just give everyone a plus one every time they get a feat and then ability score improvement feat just gives you a plus one? And then you can balance all of the first and fourth level feats against each other instead of trying to scale it that way. And that's again, it's going to be one of those things where we need to see, because I know in the Giants um, Unearthed Arcana, they did have eighth level feats until they revised it because it didn't seem to be too popular in that document. I'm just not I'm not a fan of going up and saying that, well, now that you get a feat from at eighth level, you could pick a first level feat or a fourth level feat or an eighth level feat. And then, you know, creating that. That decision paralysis where it's like, well, this eighth level feat's got to be really awesome because it's an eighth level feat, but I really want to take this first level feat. And it just like, it, it, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't like that. <laughs> I, I, I could see there being like the first level feats, which are these basic feats you get to choose, which do something cool that you get right from the get go. Mm-hmm. And having the 20th level feats being this awesome epic boon thing you get to do at the end of the game. And then maybe just having like, two tiers in the middle like having the the you know kind of that fourth to tenth level mm-hmm. tier and then the tenth to nineteenth basically just like having tiers mm-hmm. instead of because like let's be honest D plays very differently depending upon what tier your character yeah. is in you know yeah. and by tier i mean you have this kind of first through third and then third through probably about eighth eighth to about twelfth um you know, there's a different feel in the campaign depending upon which tier all of the characters are following, uh, falling level wise. Yeah, it would be interesting if there was some mechanic to level up a feat. Like if you use your eighth level 
feat slot and you take a fourth level feat, you get a fourth level feat plus something. But that might even be getting a little too, you know, fiddly. Um, the other thing, though, that got me is, and this kind of falls into that category of I don't know what they're fixing. Was this really a problem they needed to fix? Is a lot of these feats now have prerequisites that they didn't have before. So some of them have prerequisites that are the class groups that they came up with. Expert, priest, mage, warrior. Mm -hmm. Some of them that you used to be able to take now require you to have martial weapon proficiency. and it's it's weird to me because I don't know why they're putting up some of the walls that they're putting up. For example, like, you know, you uh, I'm going to hit Polar Master in a second here, too, because that, that was a very specific <laughs> dig at me liking Spears. But I don't know why you would have a disincentive to like if somebody wants to take like charge. I don't know why you want to tell somebody you can't have charge if you don't have martial weapons. It may not be great if you're not a martial weapon class, <laughs> but I don't know why you're adding that as a special thing in there, you know? I'm remembering this this wizard from the first 5e campaign I played who would constantly cast Expeditious Retreat on himself to run up to the front line of combat <laughs> and then get mad because nobody else was there with him. <laughs> we can't run as fast as you. <laughs> hey if you want to be first you go ahead and be first but that also means you get all of those orcs trying to punch you in the face it just seems weird to me though there's a lot of feats that you could just take before in the 2014 rules that now require things like martial weapon proficiency and i don't get what they're trying to do with that and i think it's it's important to note for example again getting ahead of ourselves but rogues have simple weapon proficiency and weapon proficiency with anything that is a finesse weapon so technically, they don't have martial weapon proficiency, so they wouldn't qualify for any of those. I don't know. They're defining things a little too much. Yeah, because this feels like you're even getting into that 3-5 territory, which I used to hate, where you have a feat tax on things. My character concept really doesn't have me needing to use all martial weapon proficiencies, but it does have me wanting to use this feat that has martial weapon proficiencies as a prerequisite. So now I'm going to take this extra feat that I don't want just so that I can realize this later. I don't like that, and it really does give me 3-5 flashbacks. I'm going to be mad if they release the 8th level feats and they have other feats as requirements. Oh, yeah. We are not going there again. Yep. We've been there. We've done that. I don't want to do it again. That was the case, like, when they released that uh, the Giants Unearthed Arcana that had the 8th level giant feats. They did have prerequisites of other feats in them, and that was not a popular thing, as I recall. They did a follow-up on Earth Arcana, and they removed the requirements, and they actually didn't have 8th level feats. That makes sense. It's going to be interesting to see if they if they try and do that in this different paradigm. It just feels like adding an extra hurdle that doesn't need to be there. Now, I am going to wrap this all up by calling BS on the Polar Master uh, feat. <laughs> because in order to simplify the Polar Master feat, they now say it has to be... A heavy weapon with reach instead of listing the specific weapons you could use with Polar Master, which means now a spear is no good to use as Polar Master, which is really news to like hundreds and thousands of years worth of armies. Over the years. <laughs> <laughs> it's already really hard to make spears cool in D&D and spears are actually pretty cool and you're making it less cool now. Stop it. <laughs> we found one of Jared's soapboxes. Oh, my goodness. At that, I'm going to like I'm going to lean onto my spear and step down off of the soapbox. <laughs> <laughs>
So I think we've covered all of this for far longer than we probably needed to, because <laughs> this episode went long. Oh, yeah. But I think it was it was definitely a worthy discussion. And I don't think I, I think a lot of this needed to be talked about and we wouldn't have been able to fit it in if we had also included the classes, because yeah. I'm really excited to talk about the classes. So let's move into downtime research. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It may be products, websites, videos, podcasts, but it'll always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, I gave a shout out to Patreon mapmakers not too long ago. To be completely honest, I'm not sure if that was here or in the Gnomecast, so you'll have to forgive me. <laughs> it's um, a big blur now. <laughs> it's all a blur. It's all a blur. But uh, I wanted to point folks towards Tom Cardos's Kickstarter for his Into the Wilds books. He's one of the mapmakers on Patreon that I really like. And these books look like they're going to be great for in-person play. Um, they're all going to be dry erase. They're flip. Uh, I believe he has both uh, detailed and blank maps in there. There's, I believe, six of them that cover different environments. Um, all very cool. And you also get the digital assets for all of it if you still just want to do stuff online. Um, so definitely worth looking into. I believe there should be about a week or so left on the campaign when this episode drops. And we'll have a link to it in our show notes. It's uh, Into the Wilds-Maps. I don't have these, obviously, because they're kickstarting, but I have another uh, company that has like the the flip mat uh, dry erase mats that are done like as books, and they're really neat. I really like them. You may not know this about me, but I am in a constant state of failing to collect action figures. And what I mean by that is trying to not collect action figures and then doing it anyway. So if you, like me, would like to fail at collecting more action figures, you can currently pre-order a new line of Dungeons & Dragons action figures from the Hasbro Pulse website. And all of these are based on the 80s Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. So you can currently pre-order Hank, Diana, Bobby and Uni as one package. Unfortunately, the Avenger and Dungeon Master have already sold through, so you cannot pre-order them. You're going to have to wait until they start showing up in stores. <laughs> but you should be able to uh, pre-order you know, the other ones. And we'll have a link in the uh, the show notes for where to go for those. <laughs> We've used up all our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure, where we get to talk about rangers, bards, and rogues. Yay! Yeah!